Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is the uh, fourth event in our path to becoming uh, a CFO series. We've had uh, the awesome CFOs from Salesforce, Quora, Flexport uh, already. And uh, today we have uh, Bill Losh from Okta. And Bill, uh, you know, amazing career. We'll, we'll dig into it. We'll talk about it. But uh, he spent time in technology companies, entertainment companies. He was a chief accounting officer at Yahoo. He's since spent time at DreamWorks Animation, Moby TV. He's spent almost the last seven years at uh, Okta now, helped take them public uh, a few years ago. And I'm uh, delighted to have him uh, here with us today. So, Bill, welcome. So, Thank, you. Join us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, let's just dive right in. As I mentioned, you have an interesting background in that you've spent time both in entertainment mm -hmm. companies in that industry, but then tech, and you actually you went back and forth. Right. Right. So, right. I'd, I'd love to hear that perspective of. You know, what's the difference and how, how is that experience? Why did you make uh, those choices mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. go back and forth? Yeah, so I, I think that um, I started out uh, more in the entertainment side, um, which was really more of an evolution of, you know, when I came out of uh, UCLA, I went to uh, KPMG. It was um, in the accounting firm KPMG. And as it so happened, um, you know, like a lot of you who probably have gone through the big four, it was more than the big four at the time, but the big four <laughs> accounting, um, you know, you, you, you get your ticket, so to speak, your CPA, and then you, you know, want to get the hell out of there as quickly as you can. Um, and one of the things that I was interested in um, living in LA was the entertainment industry, because, you know, who wouldn't be interested in the entertainment industry? Um, and I was fortunate that one of the partners at KPMG um, had just left not too long before I was starting to think about when I wanted to leave um, to go basically be the CFO for the, um, the entire Recreation and Parks Division at Universal. And since he wanted um, to basically bring in a controller, he hired me for that role. So that's kind of how I evolved into the entertainment industry. And recreation and parks, it's not kind of, it's kind of entertainment, but it's not really. I mean, there's, there's an entertainment aspect. You obviously work for a studio, but, but that, was, um, that was really what drove that. And, you know, the reality is that it was a, it was a great job. I enjoyed it. But, um, uh, you know, around 98, 97, 98, um, there was, you know, this thing called the Internet that people were starting to get interested in. And I was starting to get interested in it from the standpoint of just the internet, but also just to try to understand what opportunities there might be from a finance standpoint and to try to get into that industry. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do there, but I thought it, was a, it would be a good thing. And as it turned out, again, this same person, um, because of some shakeups that happened at Universal at the time, went off to be the CFO of this startup company called GeoCities, which you pro none of you have probably ever heard of, but it was literally probably the first social media company because it built websites that, that individuals built. And so um, at the time, their thought was, you know, this was in early 98, that, um, you know, the, the internet was hot, things were going strong, so people were trying to get into companies, see how quickly they could become public, um, and try to get the best valuations possible. 
And so, again, he brought me this time to these GeoCities um, to basically be the same role I was doing for him at Universal. Um, but we took the company public. And that was really more of a, you know, obviously a bit of a technology media company, but that's, that's kind of how I kind of started to move more into technology. Um, and then fortunately, and I say fortunately because the GeoCities business model as were many models back then, was completely built on usage and you know, really had not too much to do with revenues, um, we got bought by Yahoo. And um, literally like four minute, four, five months after we went public. Um, and so at that point, it was Yahoo. Um, and you know, there was certainly those things where you start to think about, okay, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna do another like GeoCities or you know, Yahoo at the time? Was, was Yahoo. I mean, they were, they were the thing. They were, um, you know, a great company. They, um, you know, had really revolutionized search um, and were, were going gangbusters. And the opportunity that was afforded me was to um, not just go work for in the finance and accounting group for Yahoo in the U.S., but they wanted me to go to Europe because at the time the thought was they were going to take the European Yahoo operations and spin it off as a separate public company. And because I had just done an IPO, they for some reason thought I might know how to do that. So they sent me to London, um, willingly by the way, because I really wanted the opportunity. And that's really how I got into Yahoo, ended up with Yahoo. Um, you know, eventually becoming, coming back and becoming the chief accounting officer there. Um, and then really, because for some family reasons, um, we had to move back to Southern California. And that was really what was the, the germination of, of, in effect, going back to the entertainment industry. But the caveat to that a little bit was the entertainment industry I went back to was DreamWorks, but it was DreamWorks Animation. And when you think about what it was happening in the animation business at the time, it was not just kind of your traditional entertainment, it was computer-generated animation. And so there was a very strong element of technology involved in what they did. Um, now, for, for those of you that have any interest on in the accounting and the financial stuff as it relates to entertainment, that is a very different animal than technology because you know, there is very much obviously driven by you know, the success of the box office because it was children's animation, um, our biggest competitor was Pixar, obviously. A lot of back then, a lot of the, the, the business model was driven by, by, by home video because, you know, kids want to watch Shrek 500 times. And so, you know, families wanted to, to buy it and stuff like that. But there was an element of technology to it. So it wasn't like I totally got away from the technology. And I think the, you know, there is, a, we could spend the whole night talking about the differences between the entertainment industry and technology. But I think there are some similarities that are interesting. I think, you know, as finance people, um, you know, you have a lot of the same challenges. You have a lot of the same um, things that you have to focus on. Granted, the business models are very different, but you have to think about that. You also have to deal with the fact that, you know, those of us up here in Northern California like to, you know, I don't want to say disparage Hollywood, but, you know, kind of say, well, you know, they've got those talent, those people in talent that, you know, they're, they're kind of crazy. They're kind of weird, you know, kind of saying, I don't know if any well, of you come guys. Come back to San Francisco? Right? Well, well, but that's my point is there, there is talent up here too, and it's the engineers. So, you know, the, the, 
not that they're as crazy as the talent down in Hollywood, but you still have to realize that within the organization, there is certain elements of, you know, what, what, you know, what butters the bread, so to speak. And, you know, certainly in, in the tech world, it's the engineering product people. And so you have to really think about it in those terms. So there's a lot of similarities there. Um, but the entertainment industry, I mean, I, I, I dabbled in it, so to speak, but I, I, I definitely like technology better. And even, like I said, with, with my time at DreamWorks Animation, a lot of the appeal of that job, besides the fact that they were going public and I was doing an IPO for them, is that it was, it, there's a lot of technology there. Got it. Um, and so as you were going through that journey, was there any role where, was it always a goal that CFO, I want to get there, I want to be a public company CFO. Did you think that way or are you kind of an accidental <laughs> CFO? Like Stum I stumbled into it. Exactly. Right? So <laughs> how did that happen? Um, I think that, you know, certainly in the early part of my career, the answer would have been no. I mean, I wasn't necessarily gearing to be a CFO. I mean, the reality is, you know, at UCLA, which is where I went to undergrad, um, you know, I got to the point kind of in my junior, senior year where I needed, you know, I, I realized after I got out of school, I needed a job. Um, and I was, I was adept at accounting and, well, math, therefore I, I did accounting. And, but when I went into accounting initially to KPMG, I, I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a finance person or whether it, you know, I wanted to you know, get into operations or what I wanted to get into. I mean, obviously I wasn't an engineer by background, so I knew I wasn't going to get into engineering, but a lot of it, and, and I think this is one of the appeals of working for one of the big four firms or back then the big six, um, or, you know, going to other things like investment banking and stuff is that you get to see industries and you kind of get to see, um, different companies and, and you get to see the inner workings of things so you can kind of understand that. I think when I first went to um, Universal, um, I think that's when I started to have the aspirations that I was going to be a finance person and that I really wanted to be um, ultimately a CFO. And um, it took me a while to get there, but, th but that, that really was the goal. And then it certainly solidified once I went to Yahoo. Got it. And as you went through that journey, right? So from entry level accounting to VP of finance, chief accounting officer, CFO, at what point along that journey did you feel like, you know, I have it to go be that CFO? Because I'm sure you had a lot of peers who haven't gotten to where you have, right? And so yeah. what did you take away from the patterns that you saw in the people who made it versus right. who didn't? And was there something deliberate that you did you know, to get to where you are? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, um, you know, certainly for me, it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't like it was an epiphany where someday, one day I woke up and said, yeah, I can do this. Um, I think that I had the opportunity um, to really think about, you know, certainly my strongest background was, was from the accounting side. Um, but when I was at Yahoo, I had that opportunity to not just do accounting, but especially because I went when I went to Europe, um, the notion the, the role was finance director. So it wasn't like you're the accounting director. It was you're going to be the finance director. Um, and I got a lot of the things that I thought were necessary to be a CFO, such as certainly the FP&A side. 
but also um, a lot of ability to interact and involve in business decisions and strategy with the different business units within um, both both kind of centrally in Europe, but also geographically. And I think that really was a big stepping stone for that because it wasn't just you know, that I could do the spreadsheets and could do the analysis. It was also that I was really starting to understand um, and make a difference, let's say, with business decisions. Um, and that was really where I started to say, okay, I think this is something that, you know, can get me more aspirationally to be a CFO, knowing that I was missing some things. Certainly, you know, with Europe, um, we weren't the corporate headquarters, so it wasn't the corporate part of it, although obviously because we were trying to roll it out into a separate public company, we were starting to try to you know, put all that structure in place. Not, not just the accounting and control structure, but also the, the, the finance structure of um, you know, business decisions and forecasting and stuff like that. But I knew you know, I needed to go back to the mothership, so to speak, before I could really ingrain that. And that's what ended up happening because I ended up going back, um, not initially being the chief accounting officer. They actually, we ended up not rolling Europe out as a separate public entity. Um, and, but in the process of getting ready for that, I had built a lot of the European finance operations, hired controllers in different countries, all that kind of stuff. And they decided they wanted me to do that outside of Europe, like other places internationally. So I spent a year um, getting a lot of mileage and, and doing that. And then the goodness of that was it really gave me a very, very strong knowledge of international and, and geographical uh, different markets and stuff like that. And so then when they brought me back to Yahoo corporate, um, they made me the chief accounting officer, but the chief accounting officer at that point had all of accounting, but all the financial planning under it too. And the only thing I didn't have in finance under me was investor relations. And so it's really the fact that Sue Decker was the CFO. She gave me that opportunity um, that really solidified my confidence. Plus, she was a great mentor because I was able to learn from her what it was to be a CFO because a lot of the things that I was good at was not her background because her background was banking. She was a sell-side analyst. She was very smart. Well, she's very smart in general, but she was very, you know, schooled and knew how to do you know, financial strategy and dealing with the Wall Street. And those were things that I had not experienced. And so she did things like allow me to um, participate in the IR uh, or the reach out to the investor or the analysts and stuff like that. So that, that's how I kind of evolved all that. So by the time I had all that, um, as I said earlier, for family reasons, we, we had to move back to Southern California. But I felt like, okay, I can, you know, I've got, I've got those resources, I've got those tools. And then what happened is, you know, I, I didn't become the CFO at DreamWorks. They had a CFO, but I did basically the same role I did at Yahoo at DreamWorks when we took the company public. Um, and then I, you know, decided after being there for a couple of years, we, we wanted to come back to Northern California because the family things we brought us to Southern California had changed. And, um, then, I, then I, that's when I took a CFO role. Got so. it, got it. And so you answered part of the question I'm going to ask now, which is something I ask uh, everybody I uh, speak with in the, in the series, which is 
people get into that CFO role from very varied backgrounds, mm -hmm. right? So you have you know, studied accounting, KPMG, mm -hmm. uh, and and you went that route. But then you talked about how Sue Decker had more of an investment mm -hmm. banking mm -hmm. background, and so you find CFOs with all of these varied backgrounds who get to that role. Right. What's your experience been? You talked about you know, putting yourself in these positions where you had to fill some of those holes. Uh, in your own experience, right. and, and uh, you worked on that, right? But in general, what have your lessons and, and learning been? Uh, does that background matter? Does where you start matter in terms of where you ultimately end up? And, and what have some of your takeaways been? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think that the background um, can matter a little bit incrementally, but I don't think it, it matters as much as sometimes people think it does. And what I mean by that is, there's been ebbs and flows. Like, um, you know, I think in the 90s, um, you know, there was the big push like investment banker, CFO. Investment, you know, you got to go to business school. You got to be an investment banker. That's the only way you can be a CFO. Um, then what happened is, you know, because of some of the challenges, um, you know, with some of the companies like WorldCom and folks like that in, you know, 2001 and the advent of Sarbanes-Oxley, everybody was like, whoa, 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 you know, you really need to make sure you're also a steward of, you know, the, the corporate governance and the financials and the balance sheet and the assets. And yeah, we want you to still be strategic, but you better know how to do this stuff. And so it actually kind of swayed back to like, you know, if you had a background in accounting, um, obviously, you know, you needed to have what I was talking about, that, that experience of having done FP&A and some of the other things, but being an accountant by back was actually more of a beneficial thing. So it's like, okay, you got to control DNA. You've got that in your DNA. That was better. So it kind of swayed back that way. It then started to kind of go back the other way a little bit between 2002 and then 2009 happened. Everybody was like, oh, okay, all the way back again. Got it. <laughs> Um, and so my point being that um, I think that those sways were, were more incremental. It wasn't like it's, you know, it wasn't in any situation where, okay, if you're an accounting person, you can't be a CFO. And then after Sarbanes, if you're not an accounting person, you can't be a CFO. But I think it can be incremental. But I think the, the, the bottom line is the goodness about being in a public accounting firm, or like I said earlier, investment banker, is you get to see a lot of things. You get to get a lot of experience with industries and companies, and you get to be, to some degree, influential with those companies. And that's important because a big part of your job as a CFO is to influence. I mean, you, you always have the ultimate weapon, so to speak. That's probably a bad way of saying it, but you know, you control the purse strings. So, People have to be nice to you <laughs> and work with you to a certain extent, but to be a really effective CEO, CFO, you have to you have to influence, and you have to influence in a positive way. And so I think that those backgrounds can give you that, and you can fill in what might be missing on the technical side. You know, if you're an accountant by background and you haven't done a lot of the FPA or modeling or you know that kind of stuff, you can fill that in. You can learn the IR stuff. But I, I do think um, you know having some of that basic background can help you whichever whichever way you you come in. Got it. So bottom line is, if you're an accountant, you're hoping for a recession <laughs> <laughs> or some major like control thing. Got it. Um, All right. So now, as you got that CFO role and you and you started doing that job, as you think back at it, right? So you 
been doing it for a while now. What are some of the screw-ups, right? So what, what are some of the, oh my God, I wish somebody had told me this before I became a CFO. Were there lessons and, and moments like that? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that um, I certainly screwed up, and I've seen it happen, is there's a tendency, uh, in my situation, I, be, I was a CFO coming into a new company. Um, so it wasn't like I was, you know, had been the VP of finance um, or, and moved up. I, I came in as a new company. And so that's relevant to what I was going to say, which is, you know, for those of us, for those of you that have started with, you know, kind of smaller companies, and hopefully you're starting with companies that are smaller but growing fast, lots going on, there's a tendency to, you know, go in and you're going to, as I said, you know, even a company like Okta, which when I started was, was fairly small, very well run, strong VCs, you know, it was, it was not, you know, bad, but you're always going to step into, you know, some crap. You just are. I mean, that's just the way it is. And because everybody's moving so fast that there's certain areas of, you know, corporate governance, there's certain areas from an accounting standpoint, there's certain areas where it's just, it hasn't been a priority. And that's just the nature of the beast. And anybody who tries to convince you that, that everything's pristine, if the company is small and has big market opportunity, um, either it's true and they've been focusing kind of on the wrong things, which is growing the company, or they're, 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 it's not true. And so there's a tendency, I think, for CFOs when they start to say, and I did this, to say, oh, I got to fix all this at the same time, you know, because it's like, you know, because what happens a lot, too, is as you're coming in, there's certain constituencies, whether it's the board or, you know, people in the organization who are like, you got to do this, you got to fix this, you got to fix this, you got to fix this. And you got to kind of step back and really think about a couple things. First, your ultimate goal is to be the strategic partner for the CEO to grow the company. That is, that is your primary you know, function. And you've got to be make sure that you're spending enough mind share and enough focus to do that. Then what you've got to do is really prioritize. You know, prioritize what is really needs to be addressed when. Um, you know, in our example at Okta, um, you know, there were certainly things that if you wanted to just look at the finance organization from a system standpoint, process controls, that yeah, it would have been great to, you know, day one address those things. Um, now, it certainly was important that we address those things before we went public. And, and that's what we did. But you had to prioritize it where my initial reaction was, you know, I got to. And what happened was while I was doing that, I wasn't putting enough focus on effort into giving the input to Todd, who's our CEO, that we probably needed to, you know, now it's turned out okay, so I'm not, I'm not complaining, but, but you know, it, it, that, was, that was one of the things. And I've seen other CFOs do that. I've seen, frankly, I've seen a lot of finance people do that in their, particular, in their particular roles. So that would be one thing. I think the second thing is there is a tendency, you know, I said earlier that the most important or the, the one of the big learnings is how to influence people in the organization. Um, you do have the power of the purse and you've got to be careful that you don't use the power of the purse 
in a way that it feels arbitrary. And what I mean by that is, you know, we just got done with our budgeting process. I'm sure a lot of you are in your budgeting processes. Um, people always, you know, they're not going to be happy. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the beast. That's our jobs is to make sure that resources are being allocated. And, you know, th th nobody's ever going to get everything they want. But what's really important is that you don't do it in a way that is like, this is the way it is, because I've said this is the way it is. Um, I mean, you have to be tough, but you have to really influence from the standpoint of really explain um, and bring them along with you as to, you know, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's how I'm trying to influence you into, you know, what we need to do and not just wave over the head, but, you know, I can just cut off your money or do that because I want to kind of thing. And I think that, again, that's a, a lot of times people going into the new role because they feel like they can use that. They don't spend as much time um, building those influencing partnerships. And I don't mean just with the CEO. I mean with the different business units, heads of the different business units, um, you know, with the head of sales and his or her team, those kind of things. And I think that's important. You've got to learn to do that. And it's hard because you know, as you guys all in this room know, um, working in finance, you don't have a lot of time to do stuff. You're not given a lot of time. It's not like you can, um, you know, spend a lot of um, excess time. So you really have to discipline yourself to do that. And I think those are both, both of those things are things that I didn't do as well going in as I, as I could have. And I think I, I've learned that, you know, that's, that's something you have to really be focused on. Got it. So let's shift focus on career, career paths a little bit to management, right? Mm -hmm. and mentorship and, mm -hmm. and things like that. So uh, you, you talked about how your first couple of roles, it looked like you were following a mentor who was taking these roles and mm -hmm. it looked like uh, they had a role to play. And how, how important have mentors in general been in your career? And have you, you know, been systematic in seeking them out? Or uh, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I, I think they're very important. I think it took me a while to appreciate how important they were. And I think the reason being, and the reason I say that is, um, you know, a mentor, frankly, can only be as good as you, the effort you put into it as, as the men, as mentee. I'm not sure if that's the right sure, word, yeah. but as the mentee. Um, because, you know, first of all, most people, um, if you ask them advice, they like to give advice. I mean, people like to talk about themselves, frankly. I mean, so um, people are eager to be mentors, but the challenge I think sometimes is how do you use it the right way? So, and what I mean by that is you need to really think thoughtfully about what it is you're trying to get out of your mentor um, when you interact with them, because it's not always you know, sometimes it's specific to the job at hand. Sometimes it's more focused on just generally as you think about, you know, how should I think about what industry I want to go into? What sh how should I think about what, um, you know, function should I go into? Um, it's not always about, you know, please mentor me on, you know, I'm at this level, how do I get to this next level? Although that's important too, because I think those first two things are actually when you think about early in your career or even as you get you know kind of 
a ways down your career, what industries I'm going to work on, and frankly, you know, what role do I want to play in that are more important to understand. I think there's a tendency sometimes for all of us to say, well, I want to get into a job and I, you know, I want to know kind of right now how I'm going to get to this level, this level, this level, this level. Um, and not that that's not important, but I think mentors can be more helpful in kind of building the groundwork, so to speak, of, you know, what industry should I think about going in or what function should I do? What, you know, what is my capacity? What is my, what is my love? You know, because you don't always know what your love is as far as what you want to do. And I think that can be helpful. And I didn't do a very good job of that first part. I, you know, I kind of did it on my own, so to speak. Now, I was fortunate that the people I worked for, the first CFO I talked about and, and then Sue, um, you know, were good at mentoring just by nature. That was their kind of the way they managed. Um, and it certainly was helpful then to, to kind of move me up. But in making that kind of those initial assessments, um, I kind of did it on my own and I, I regret doing that. I think people that, that, that ask those inquiring questions of not just one, but many different types of people um, are, are much more successful from using mentors. And I think it can be much more helpful because, you know, again, once you engage with people, there is certainly, assuming they have the time, there's always that willingness to help out. There, there just is. People are, you know, it's not, I'm not going to make this sound too Pollyannish, but generally people are nice people. And they, and they, de they definitely want to be helpful. I think, you know, sometimes time constraints and others involve that, but I think they want to do that. So I imagine you've now had the chance to flip the coin and be the mentor, right? And yeah. so as you've done that and over the course of the, you know, your career and you look at your own team at Okta now and maybe before, mm -hmm. have you noticed patterns and characteristics in, in the people where you see that, okay, that person has that spark and, and maybe over the course of you having worked with so many people or managed so many people, what do you think sets apart the people who might have gone on to you know, higher level roles and, and uh, what patterns have you taken away? Um, no, it's, it, it's a good question. I, th I think that, you know, people who are intellectually curious, it really makes a huge, and, and what I mean by that is, they're people who are always asking questions of their mentor or just in general about, you know, the type of things I was saying earlier, which is, you know, interesting in industries, interested in, you know, how functions work, but also in the day-to-day -day course of the business, they're asking questions about things. They're, they're, you know, again, we're all under a lot of time constraints as finance people, but having that curiosity to say, okay, I understand that I am supposed to work with whoever in this functional area and figure out, you know, a budget for X um, is their job, but to be the intellectually curious to understand, well, what, what is driving what these folks need? What is that, you know, not, not necessarily the overall corporate strategy, but what is their strategy? Um, is really where I think people can be the most effective. And that curiosity can also be on the, you know, the accounting side with not, um, you know, when it comes to like accounting recognition on certain areas or revenue recognition or whatever, is really understanding the underlying business behind it. And, you know, it's, it makes it more satisfying, but it also shows that type of curiosity that I think people then 
are that type of person and it makes them stronger in whatever role they may eventually take, even if it's outside of finance, or it makes them, it also makes them much stronger as a finance person. Got it. And, and when it comes to managing people, especially when you're working in a startup environment, as you said, finance teams are always resource constrained, right? They're, maybe there's one of a certain kind for the longest period, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as you scale, you get more resources and all of that happens. And so it's harder to get a lot of management experience, people manage, management experience, if you're working in like smaller, medium-sized right. companies, right? And so, uh, you know, how did you build up those skills? Did management always come naturally to you or is that something you had to work at? And how, how did you uh, do that? Um, it did not come naturally. I think that um, one of the challenges um, I think, I certainly had, and I think I've seen it in a lot of finance people, is there's a tendency, you know, we're, we're by nature perfectionists. Um, and, and to some degree we have to be, because, <laughs> you know, if we're not, things go badly. Um, and transitioning that perfectionism to basically teaching, mentoring, managing somebody is hard because there's always that, okay, I know I could do this better than they can, so I, I really don't want to spend that time doing that. And I think that's, that is a tough transition for manager or for, for finance people to make. I certainly had that, that difficulty. Um, Nathan, who works for me now, would probably say I probably still have that difficulty <laughs> to some degree. Um, Doug, who used to work for me, probably said, yeah, I really have that problem. Which is why Doug left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I think that that's, that's hard. And I think that, you know, there is no quite finance person, irregardless of whether you're a finance or not a finance person, um, managing is the hardest thing to do. It really is. And because, you know, and again, it, it also can be hard for finance people because, you know, we really like the fact that numbers do what we tell them to do. Um, spreadsheets kind of do what we tell them to do. People don't always do what we tell them to do or, want, or do what we want them to do. And so I think that it's hard to establish that. It's hard, especially to your point about a high growth startup company, you're moving so fast that it's certainly easier to do it yourself in the short term. But it's, it's really then trying to realize that you can't, that's not scalable because, you know, when I started at Okta, I think the finance organization, um, I don't know, Doug was what, three people or something like that? <laughs> and, you know, so that wasn't gonna scale. Um, so we really had to, you know, kind of force that, you know, now I, I had learned this before I came to Okta, but you had to, you know, again, going back to prioritizing, making sure you understood what the big chunky things you had to do, um, you know, try to, stay on top of that as much as possible, but let people kind of do their own thing, so to speak, um, and you know, empower them how to do it, but kind of let them do that and let them you know, um, flourish was really important, and it, but it's a very hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do. Awesome, so let's end by taking a look at the future of what's coming. I'd love to hear your thoughts and then we'll open it up uh, uh, for questions, but you know, you've been doing this for Almost 30 a long years, long time. time, right? And so, <laughs> what has changed, right? And so, if you look at your job today, right, versus when you started off in the first five years, ten years, mm -hmm. has has the job itself changed? 
How has it evolved? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly, it's certainly, it's changed um, in a number of ways. I think that, I actually think that the finance organization in general, um, which is, this is a very positive thing, has a lot more perceived value by the organization than maybe it did 30 years ago. And, and I think part of the reason for that is um, I think a lot of smart CFOs, finance people, general you know, board members who you know, understand it, realize that a very strong finance organization can add so much value to the company strategically. Not just you know, making sure the books are closed, which is impor very important, um, especially as your public company, you gotta do that right. Um, but the strategic finance value, I think that that's evolved over the last 30 years. I think certainly like everything else, um, the advent you know, of more and more technology and more and more um, enhanced technology has changed finance just like everything else. I mean, I think that um, there's a lot more ability to faster curate data, to pull data, um, you know, but there's also the ability to over data, you know, and over analyze because you can get so much data and so you get into the analysis paralysis. So I think there's, there's positives from that, obviously, which is you can get more information. It's easier to, you know, understand within the organization what's happening. It's, it's easier to get market data. It's easier to, to get predictive tools to help you, but you can also overwhelm yourself with too much data. Um, so I think that's made a, you know, that, that's changed a lot. I think, you know, as, as we think about just accounting and accounting operations, um, you know, certainly with some, you know, um, BI tools that are coming out and, 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 or AI tools that are coming out and, and that, you know, you can automate things a lot more efficiently, which is a good thing, I think, over time because it allows individuals to not be spending so much time, you know, taking this number and moving it over here, it allows them to analyze and frankly do the fun stuff of, you know, what their jobs are. So I think that that's a very positive thing. I think that, um, you know, in the markets themselves, um, you know, if, if you're a finance person who's dealing with the public markets, um, it's changed considerably from the standpoint that, you know, with index um, funds and with algorithms really driving a lot of what happens, um, you have to be adjusting to the fact that, you know, your influence is still strong on investors, but there's things that, you know, you can't control or are difficult to control. So, so I think that's a big thing that's changed in the public company markets in addition to recently in the last few years um, with some of the legislation that's been put in place, the, the sell side analyst influence is not as strong as it used to be. You have to really focus on going directly to the buy side. Um, that's changed. The sell side is still important, but it's not as influential as it used to be. And I think, you know, for those of you that are at companies that are con contemplating going public, I didn't have to deal with this, but I think that doing direct listings is going to become more and more of a thing. You know, whether that's good or bad, I'm still not sure, but um, I think that's going to become more of a thing. So would you yes. say that at least some people in the room 
uh, hopefully a lot of people in the room are going to be up for that CFO role in the next five years, ten years. Mm -hmm. You know, is is that one of the things you would recommend? Figure that out, understand direct listings and how they work, because that might be a, a much bigger thing uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it would necessarily be something you need to like you know rush home tonight and figure out, because frankly. I think there's a lot of noise out there about it right now. I think there's an uncertainty, um, you know, as to whether it actually really works, other than for like a very, very strong consumer name, that frankly is not um, certainly needing to, you know, the the financing. Um, but there's a lot of, you know back and forth. I mean, some of the direct listings that went out this past year didn't do as well as people had expected. And there's, you know, is that because the bankers weren't um, underwriting it? Um, or is it just because there's been some situations with some of those companies that are just external from the standpoint of just the business? Um, I think there's a lot of noise. And so my, my only reason for saying don't get too excited about it yet, is this gonna take a year or two for I think this to flesh out more, for there to be more information about it, um, yeah. is my opinion. Um, where I do think people should be focused is, you know, we're all, I think, all in technology. Use technology as much as you can and be, be, um, be thoughtful, but also be, to go back to being intellectually curious, about how technology can help you and how you can make use of it smartly, meaning you know, get more data, but don't over data yourself, but using AI, using those kind of things. And I think that's something to keep focused on because if you can leverage the operation or scale the operation much more efficiently, that again is gonna provide you, you know, we talked or I talked earlier about the fact that finance people by nature have so little time. Um, because we just got so much on our plates, that the more you can scale that by using technology, the better you're going to be. And I think that's something that, frankly, I'm not as good about that, you know, because I'm an old, you know, I'm an old guy. And um, not that I, I, I do know technology, but, but you know, you, pretty much everyone in this room is younger than me. You, you guys can, can, you know, that's something that you should really be focused on, because I think that's going to be a big difference. Um, going forward and I also think yeah I don't want to get into politics believe me I don't want to get into politics but depending on um, you know how things shake out in November um, you know that could have an influence on you know finance companies the market all those kind of things um, I'm not sure I you know because you know what are you gonna do other than vote you should all vote um, <laughs> there's not much you can do about that but I think that it'll be interesting to see post November if things are the same or if, if, if there's things that change got it awesome that was great I'm gonna open it up to uh, questions Laura's carrying down the mic please raise your hand if you have a question for the in terms of finding this mentorship would you suggest finding someone within the organization or find outside? What would be the best way to go about this? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think it really, um, it goes back to, I think, what I was saying. It, it, you got to define what you want to be mentored about to some extent. So, like, in the early 
part of mentorship, I don't mean early part, but in, if the mentorship you're looking for is to really try to understand you know, industries or understand just generally, like how do I become a better manager? How do I, um, you know, what my function should be, those kind of things. I think doing it outside is better because they're gonna have, you know, first of all, they're gonna have a bit of a, a distance, so to speak. But I also think that, you know, one of the things I should have mentioned from mentorship is it doesn't necessarily have to be a finance person either. It can be somebody who's more of general, you know, who you respect. Um, so I think that, you know, would make sense to the extent that you're looking for mentorship on how to, you know, like I talk to, and granted, I guess I'm outside the organization, so maybe this is more of a functional thing. I talk to a lot of CFOs who are in the process of doing, going IPO, or recently, we last couple of years, we did some big convertible debt, so I get those questions. That's not so much mentorship, it's, but, but it is to a certain extent of how you navigate that. Um, you know, then you might want to specify, like, talk to somebody who's done that before. And in a lot of cases, especially with some internal stuff, that's somebody who's in the organization. Um, I was going to ask, it sounds like you've gotten a lot of opportunities, whether following um, someone else or just different roles. How did you, were you always like, I'm up for it? Or was there a big decision process and how did you weigh different options or maybe some things you didn't take? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, I think, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about intellectual curiosity. My, my, my predilection was to do it because those opportunities were always something where I thought I could learn what I didn't know or take an opportunity that was out of my comfort zone. So I try to push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, I think the, you know, the one of the, of the things I told you that I did, the one that I hesitated the most on, but that was purely just, that was more on the personal side was going to Europe and living in Europe. Um, now, as it turned out, um, my wife and I sometimes say, hey, it would be great to go back to Europe because we love living, because it was in London, we love London. Um, but, you know, I think that the one area probably where um, I was fortunate and I think where you should hesitate to some degree is really think about, you know, what industry you want to be in. Um, I think that, you know, it's very important who you work for, obviously, and I've been very fortunate the people I've worked for, um, but what's probably more important is what industry you're in, because if you're not excited about the industry, irregardless of what your job is, um, you're not going to be excited. It just, you know, and it's, it's something, not everybody has the opportunity to go into their ideal industry, but that, that's something, and I think for me, the fortunate part of working for the big four is I could look at those and there were some opportunities besides just following the CFO I talked about to Universal that I could have done and I didn't do it because I didn't I wasn't excited about the industry. You spoke a little bit about um, how CFOs are coming from different backgrounds depending on kind of the economic political climate. Somebody coming from very clearly coming from one background speaking hypothetically, coming from an accounting background, um, who doesn't have what seem to be a lot of CV items that 
um, CFOs have, um, for instance, uh, like Big Four experience or mm -hmm. audit experience or graduating from a big state school, what would you say, how much of a disadvantage do you think that is? And depending on that answer, well, how would you overcome those? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's a big disadvantage. I would say, yeah, it, it, it makes it a little harder. There's no question about that. Um, I think that my experience has been, again, if you show the intellectual curiosity and the desire to do other things within the organization, especially if it's a small company, um, a lot of times, you know, if you're a smart person, um, and I assume you're a smart person, um, you'll get those opportunities, you know, because, and, and it, it, it is better to incubate that in a smaller company because you tend to have to be a jack of all trades to some extent. And I think that that's where it's harder if you try to do that at bigger companies because you really get, I think, more pigeonholed into, you know, okay, you're an accounting manager and that's what you do. And in that big company, yeah, maybe you can rise from level one to two to three, but you're going to be an accounting manager. I think it's really the smaller companies that are moving fast. Um, you know, as an accounting person, you're going to have an aptitude for financial numbers and things like that, even if, if you haven't been a big four or things like, or investment banker, or got your MBA or any of that stuff. Um, so I think there is that opportunity to do that. But you're, you're going to have to be, you know, not obnoxiously aggressive, but you're going to have to be aggressive about it. You really are. Um. Uh, hi, Bill. Thanks for the talk. It was uh, very um, um, insightful. My question is about, you mentioned, um, you know, being a CFO, um, you know, you, uh, it, it's about having a strategic mind share with the CEO, um, especially for a, you know, startup or high growth startup company. Um, but um, I think on the, on, on the other side, being a CFO, you also have fiduciary duty mm -hmm. um, to the board. Uh, you have fiduciary duty to the company as a whole. And sometimes, um, you know, like just being, you know, like given your own experience or background, you may have your own philosophy in terms of how you should run the books of the company. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, like at certain times, you know, in a time when all those are coherent with each other, which is great, but um, I suppose there are times where there might be competing voices, um, either from outside or inside of you. Um, my question is, how do you, how do you basically reconcile those voices or, 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 or make your choices when when there are conflicting voices basically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or forces i think she's being very polite about the we work situation <laughs> <laughs> that's the question okay that business model never made sense to me <laughs> um anyway um yeah no it, it's a great question because um you know i do believe that ultimately the cfo has a if not the most, certainly right up there, responsibility for making sure that something like that company doesn't happen. And I think that it put, can, can potentially, especially in that particular situation, put you in a very big conflict 
with your CEO. Um, I mean, I've been fortunate that I think by a combination of who I've chosen to work for, because I've you know did my diligence prior to, um, and just the way the working relationship has been, I've certainly have been nowhere near that type of situation. But I think that there has to be a realization that even though, like I said, you know, being that strategic partner is the most important thing, you still have that ultimate responsibility also of the corporate governance. And, you know, I think that it's hard. And, you know, the WeWorks are, ex you know, th th that's an extreme. I mean, dear, dear God. But, um, you know, there's other companies where it's not necessarily a permeated throughout the organization that's a consistent thing. There, there might be specific situations where, you know, you think, okay, we have to have a little more control here, we have to have a little more of that. I think, you know, my experience has been typically that is not areas where it's been, you know, oh, we're doing something that's really, really wrong or even wrong. It's more nuanced of you know, as we went public, there were certain things we had to do differently, or, you know, there's certain things we can't do from a disclosure standpoint. For instance, we used to be very open, still are, but very open with, um, you know, every Friday, we still have every Friday Hall Ands. We used to tell people everything, and you just can't do that anymore. And, you know, the CEO and I had some discussions about that and I had to really pull that back to a certain extent um, now he understood it over time he didn't like it because he's you know one of the very strong cultural elements of Okta is that we're very transparent with the employees and Todd's always been very good about that um, so he didn't you know that was that's not in his DNA but I had to really have those conversations because you know we were getting ready to go public we you know since then obviously we've been public um, and I think you just have to, you know, kind of go back to what I was saying earlier about the budgeting process, which is you, you, you have to have that as, no, we're not going to do that because we're not going to do that. You have to be like, well, here are the potential ramifications of doing that that are negative um, and why we, you know, should do this. And, you know, if there's some leeway there, you know, maybe you're, you compromise a little bit. Um, I think that's the way you have to think about it. But it can put, you know, I know of other CFOs who I won't name because then you'll know the companies um, who've been in tougher situations. And, um, you know, you do have the outlet potentially, and they've used it, of the board if you need to. Um, you know, again, I don't want to beat up on WeWorks all night, but what the hell the board was doing, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that that is a potential outlet if you need it, and that's that's important for CFOs, especially if you have a strong audit committee and audit committee chairman. Um, but it's it's a tough one. But you you do have to realize that as the CFO, um, the corporate governance is not not totally your response, completely your only responsibility. But it, you you got to stay on the line if, 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 as necessary. Um, so we talked about, you know, having a wide range of experiences and wide, wide range of skill sets in order to become, you know, to get to a position such as yours. Uh, would you recommend um, taking a step down from like a senior leadership position in one function, functional area, um, in order to fill some of the gaps in the resume? Yeah, it's a great question. 
Um, I think the, you know, it, it's situational, but I think if you truly believe that and have the confidence in the organization you're working on, working in, that if you take that step back um, and can gather that particular skill set and they will allow you to then utilize that in the future, I think that is a very valid thing to do. And I don't mean that it necessarily has to be I'm in this company, I'm gonna take the step back in this company, and I know this company will help me. It's if you, even if you went to a different company. Um, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, the reality is, um, this can be, you know, I think there's sometimes there's the fear that um, if I do something like that, I've you know, put myself behind by two or three years. And the reality is, it, by taking a step back, um, if you truly make the right choice about what that step back allows you to learn, yeah, you may, for that two or three year period, feel like you've taken a step back, but the reality is it springs you forward, you know, if that makes sense. And, and I think you've got to think about it that way, but I don't think, you know, I, there, there's actually one person I know in particular who I'm thinking about um, that did that um, who worked for me, um, not at my current company, but a previous company. And it worked out really well for her because um, she's a CFO now. <laughs> so, um, but it, you know, it takes some guts to do that. Fantastic. So, Bill, thank you so much for taking the thank time. I'm going to let everybody. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Awesome.